Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red Journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are broadcasting from the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod here in Milwaukee on this Sunday night, July the 30th. It's time for a little update. Some business has been accomplished already here in the first day of the convention. A lot of business yet to do. Joining us for an update and a prospectus forward, Mark Stern. He's an attorney in Chicago, a convention delegate, and a member of the Committee for the Convention Nominations. Mark, welcome back. Thanks. Tom Halverson is an attorney in Montana, a convention delegate, and a member of the Board of Directors for Concordia Publishing House. Tom, welcome back to you as well. Thank you, Pastor Wilkin. Okay, so Mark, if you would just give us a rundown of what's happened so far today. Well, we had the introductory minutes, uh, procedures, rules, things of that nature, and uh, got off to a little bit of a clunky start with some uh, technical difficulties, but uh, that got straightened out after lunch, and then they moved into substantive issues, uh, most important of which was the election of the regional vice presidents. All of the existing regional vice presidents and the first vice president were re-elected, and after that, we also recognized altar and pulpit fellowship with five new uh, church bodies worldwide, which is always exciting. There were a few other issues that came up, but again, still sort of getting up to speed on the resolutions. So it's a difficult question to ask an attorney to put something succinctly, but starting with you, Tom, if you were going to pre-write the headline for this convention, what would that headline be? Well, as far as the business we've conducted so far, my headline would be that the floor committees turn out excellent work. That's been the biggest part of what we've accomplished so far. There will be 62 elections, and maybe we did 8 or 10 of them today. And there will be dozens of resolutions, maybe we did about 8 or 10 of those. But most of what we've seen so far is the open committee meetings and the resolutions and some of the new substitute or revised resolutions coming out. And when you look at those in the uh, books that we have that contain them, and you look at the kind of discussions that went on in the open committee meetings, the concerns that some people raised to critique parts of some of the resolutions were sort of weak critiques because the work of the committees was very strong. My own opinion of the resolutions, there's only one resolution in the entire set that is going to come to the floor that I would like to see some important things changed in. That's a pretty good percent. So my headline so far is floor committees turn out excellent work. Mark, what would your headline be? For the convention. I would say the convention has been delayed, but the convention has not been denied. When we left Tampa in 2019 in the summer, nobody saw what was coming in the next 12 months. And this convention, of course, was supposed to have happened a year ago, but was postponed uh, due to the jubilee year of the Synod. Obviously, some issues came up as a result of COVID. My floor committee, Committee 5, CTCR issues, uh, has a resolution on online communion, has a resolution on studying uh, virtual and online worship, and what does that mean for our theology? So those were new problems that came up. 
but the old problems are still there that have been delayed, and the, and the convention's going to dig into those as well. Issues regarding uh, alternate routes, uh, how do we best train pastors and supply the pastors our synod needs. Issues regarding Concordia University system governance, which had already been percolating for many years before this. And uh, also issues that have arisen regarding uh, critical race theory, racism, wokeism, and all those issues that we're seeing in our contemporary society. Tom, I'd like you to comment on uh, what I see with my perspective, having been a pastor for 30-some-odd years, that the Lutheran Church Missouri Senate usually changes horses about every decade, every nine years or so. So this have a history of doing that since World War II, and not only in terms of presidential leadership, but in terms of a lot of the leadership positions. But over the last 13, going on 14 years, we've seen a remarkable amount of continuity. Mark had mentioned that all the vice presidents were returned to office that President Harrison was re-elected for his, uh, his record-breaking term in a lot of ways. So talk about the value of continuity to a church body. Well, I think it's very important, just like longevity in the pastoral office in a congregation itself, where the church suffers under what I would call the turnstile ministry, where people come and go, come and go, three to five years, and the pastor and the congregation don't get down to things because they, they just get rid of the pastor or the pastor gives up too soon. Same thing can happen with the leadership of a uh, synod. Synod's a big organization. It's like turning a battleship. You can't just do this overnight. You need longevity in these positions. We've had tremendous stability. And as far as the part of the convention we've seen so far on elections, take, take the vice presidents, it, the, the nominations themselves were so good that you practically couldn't lose. And the only issue was when we went to prioritizing the order of succession of them, then there could have been shades of difference that conscientious people could have differences of opinion about. But really, there was no chance of losing. They were incumbents and they're, they're steady and they're the people we need and that can guide us into the future. All right, so Tom, let's get into one of the issues. There are two issues facing this convention that actually have cropped up fairly recently, and one of them has to do with the disposition of one of our Concordia universities, and that is Concordia University, Texas. We've talked at length about it beforehand, but can you give us a rundown of what led up to a lot of the resolutions that are trying to sort out the problems there and then more broadly in the Concordia University system? Well, ironically, although I have been pretty deep in it and had a lot to write and say about it, really, Mark knows a lot more about this than I do. All right, I, well, I feel like you'll get a better service to your, your listeners if you let Mark answer that so question. So I'll let Mark answer that one, and then I do want to hear from you on that one. So, Mark, how do we get where we're at right now where essentially we have a rogue board of regents down in Texas trying to steal a university. Well, this issue has been percolating for quite a while. When President Christian was originally installed down there as president, the board chose at that time not to follow the bylaw process to elect a president, which required the concurrence of the president of synod. Dr. Christian's original title was CEO, and they said, well, he's not the president, so therefore it's something else and we don't have to follow the bylaws. Well, that's kind of sophistry. It's the same thing with a different title. And that went on for about 18 months. And prior to the 2016 convention, President Harrison, I think, very graciously said, you know, we're going to acquiesce to this. And he did allow him to become president, even though they had not followed the bylaw process. I don't think that in retrospect, that may not have been the best idea because it sort of gave them the idea they could do what they want to do, and the Synod was simply going to let them eventually get away with it. So this has been percolating for quite a while. 
the board has been studying various things. There have been resolutions that have come in from the Texas district to the convention, basically calling for increased autonomy for the universities, meaning self-perpetuating boards, ability to choose their own president without Senate involvement, and other things of that nature. There was visitation that occurred by President Harrison and a team went down there to address concerns about loss of Lutheran identity, about the content of some of their programming, or lack of human sexuality issues, other things of that nature. And it came to a head when the board, without really publicly initially announcing it, although of course they had acted previously to talk about it, changed the Articles of Incorporation to say that they are their own entity, they're self-controlled, they're not subject to the Synod and essentially declared independence unilaterally. The Concordia University system went down there, board of directors from Synod went down there, tried to reason with them, talk to them, and in April they basically said, no, we're not changing our mind. A number of regents have resigned from the board as a result of this, and if you look here at the convention, you won't see representation from Concordia, Texas, because they're sort of separate, but yet we're proposing to elect regents for the board, so it's not entirely clear how this is going to work out. Tom, does anything that the Board of Regents in Texas have done in terms of the legality of their reincorporation without a reversion clause to the Synod, we've talked about that before, or even in terms of the uh, bylaws of Synod, do any of it pass muster? Well, it doesn't with me. You know, just take an example that a lot of people can understand. Like in my family, when my folks were looking at the fact that they wouldn't be living on earth forever. They created a trust and then they deeded land and, and titled other property into the name of the trustee alone. Happened to be my sister. She's a CPA, MBA, good choice for a trustee. And the names of the other children do not appear on the deeds or the titles or bank accounts. They're all in the, in the name of just my sister, Deborah. And yet outside of those title documents, what we call the bare or naked title documents, is the trust instrument that does have an impact on property rights and we call them beneficial interests. The, the beneficiaries of a trust have a beneficial interest. So it isn't just a strict matter of how deeds are written. If you transfer that analogy over to a synod like this, it just doesn't happen to be a trust document. It is the bylaws of the synod, but the basic principle is the same, that although you might title the deed to the campus of the university as a bare legal title into the name of the Texas Corporation, you know, Concordia University, Texas, that doesn't erase the fact that they're still agents, fiduciaries, and on a mission given to them and assigned by the, the Synod, and that the Synod has the beneficial interest. The bylaws talk about what happens if there would be a dissolution of the school or the school stop using the property for what it's for, which is namely to educate people for the synod, especially church workers, pastoral preparation. And so those beneficial interests, although they don't exist in the deed, that's a very common thing in title issues about beneficial interests. They can exist in bylaws like they do in the, in the bylaws of the Missouri Synod. So to me, that's exactly what Martin Luther was talking about when he said in the large catechism about a show of right. You know, you just show a bare legal title in a deed that looks good if that's all you look at, and it maybe it sells in the world, and it, but he calls it swivel chair robbery. In other words, not the guy that goes out in the street and is a pickpocket that everybody can see as a thief, but people who do it in such a slick, business-like fashion with white button-down shirts and stuff, but yet it's still a theft. That's our moral view of that. 
Tom Halverson is our guest, along with Mark Stern. We're talking about the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We'll talk a little bit more about the Concordia University system on the other side of this break. I'm Todd Wilkins. Stay tuned. Was the reformer Martin Luther innovating or in error when he added the word alone to Romans 3.28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from works of the law? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. Journal. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. Donna Harrison details her journey to confessional Lutheranism from Catholicism, Scientism, Mysticism, and Evangelicalism. The free online Issues Etc. Journal. Just click the red journal subscription button at issuesetc.org. I'm Chaplain Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Congregations work hard to keep the Word of Christ dwelling richly in His disciples now and into eternal life. We work to help and support that effort. Learn more at lcms.org worship. You'll find resources on the church here, Bible studies on the hymns of the day, audio helps for learning to sing our services, and look for worship planning resources to find the latest from LCMS Worship. That's lcms.org worship. May the word of Christ dwell richly in you. For 160 years, St. John Lutheran Church Child Care and Preschool has been a congregation committed to bringing Christ's salvation to the people of Fredonia, Wisconsin. We gather to receive the Lord's gifts and His divine service to us each Sunday at 8 and 10.30. If you're in the northern suburbs of Milwaukee and looking for a traditionally liturgical church, please join us this Sunday. For more information regarding education or enrollment, visit us online at stjohnfredonia.org. Are you attending the LCMS National Convention? Ad Crucem is partnering with Confessional Lutheran Fellowship of Facebook to help members of CLF identify each other at the convention. If you're a member of CLF, pop on over to our booth to get your free CLF sticker and to see all our wonderful Christ-focused products. Visit adcrucem.com or booth 222 at the LCMS convention. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. Issues Etc. guest Dr. Ben Mays of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Here's what Martin Luther says about the pastoral office. My pastor is practicing the virtue that increases God's kingdom, fills heaven with saints, plunders hell, robs the devil, wards off death, represses sin, preserves peace and unity, and plants all kinds of virtue in the people. In a word, he is making a new world. He builds not a poor temporary house, but an eternal and beautiful paradise in which God himself is glad to dwell. We are calling good men to step up. Come to Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Learn more about studying for the vocation of pastor at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We are getting an update on the 68th regular convention to the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod with Mark Stern and Tom Halverson. 
So, Mark, if you would, you mentioned an investigative team that was sent by President Matt Harrison down to the university in Texas, and they were talking about both the issue we were discussing here, the legal issues, essentially, but they were also concerned about a loss of Lutheran identity. What did they discover there, Mark? Sure. Well, the, the report is in the workbook of the convention and it summarizes basically what the team found. There was a concern that the chapel and the worship practices were at times being led by non-Lutherans, not rostered members of the Missouri Synod. There were concerns that the campus had on-campus uh, counselors who publicly identified themselves as affirming sexual practices and things that are non-biblical among students. There were concerns that the there was really no intentional effort to convey Lutheran identity, and there was an excessive focus on diversity, inclusion, equity efforts. I don't want to use the word wokeism, but things that were focusing on aspects of students' physical created identity rather than their baptismal identity in Christ, and they were not being faithful to our doctrine and practice. What measures are being proposed at this convention that would rectify some of that, not only at Concordia University, Texas, but elsewhere? The resolution specifically dealing with Concordia, Texas is 703, and that may have been amended uh, to 703A. It calls upon the university to repent. It condemns their action as contrary to the bylaws, and it offers or did offer that if they were to come back, they could have you know absolution if they were to repent of what the board has done, which many view as a violation of the commandments in that they have taken the university away from the Senate or are attempting to do that. Tom, you have asked the question whether or not this move on the part of the Board of Regents at Concordia University, Texas, is in fact, what did you call it, a dress rehearsal for another act. What did you mean by that? Well, I don't know what they're thinking down there, and you, you have to wonder because it, it almost has reached the point of farce or absurdity, but when you take the principle uh, about them just declaring that because they didn't understand the bylaws the same way that the board of directors or the CUS directors did, therefore that misunderstanding is parlayed into the synod being guilty of mistreating them and it's parlayed into their ability to simply declare that they're independent they don't have any stewardship to the synod they're no longer fiduciaries file these unauthorized amendments to the articles of incorporation where they separate and where they're going to have a self-perpetuating board meaning that they themselves are the ones that appoint board members no more will they accept members elected or appointed by the synod if they really believe that, and they've already acted on the, what looks like a belief in that, then why wouldn't that principle apply just the same way to simply separating the Texas district from the Senate? The exact same reasoning would, if it justified what they did with the university, would also justify doing that with the district. So it just makes you wonder if a kind of a Lone Star State idea is going on here where they just want to be the Lone Star District or something. Where is this going, Mark? I know you can't predict all the legalities of it, but where do you think this is headed? I think that it's going to be dealt with one way or the other. I think it will ultimately probably reach a settlement. I am not sure, and I hate to be negative, but I am not sure that Concordia, Texas is going to come back into the fold. 
My prediction, I don't know if they're going to be litigation. I don't know if there's going to be a settlement. But at this point, they are so far down the road they have taken. And given the issues that President Harrison identified in his visitation report, one has to ask, well, if all the regents left all of a sudden, if you've got a new president, new regents, you've still got the same faculty, you've got the same programs, you've got the same students who may or may not have been told, hey, this is going to be a Lutheran institution, this is going to be biblical. They're just coming in looking for an education, maybe from a secular standpoint. I am not sure that there's necessarily what we would consider to be a happy ending. And I think the moral of the story is really, and this gets to the 704, which is the next resolution that comes up, we've got to change the structure so we do not allow the institutions to drift to a point where this type of thing becomes possible. Do you expect that Concordia University will accept the regents that are elected here at this convention for their board of regents? I don't know. Their public position is that they've changed their articles of incorporation such that they are no longer subject to the Senate requirements. So I suspect one of the first tests will be, assuming we elect regents at this convention, which we are scheduled to do, and they go down there and say, hey, I'm a regent, I want to take my seat, and Texas says no, that might be a point at which there is some litigation to test the validity of their office. Tom, where do you think this is headed? What are your thoughts on it? Well, I think the one that Mark was just talking about is likely the first thing because just in a matter of days we will have that election and then they will be calling meetings, maybe special meetings that would be even sooner than their regular quarterly meetings. And I kind of like that as being the first issue to come up in litigation. There's a series of different kinds of legal cases that potentially could arise and be filed either by them or by the Synod and when you look at that list and then you shuffle them into the order of priority of which one is the best for what I consider to be the right outcome, namely that they come back into the fold, recognize their stewardship and things are brought back, repentance, reconciliation and normalization. The issue about seeding the regents is the simplest, cleanest issue of all of them in the list. The easiest for the Texas court to comprehend, the fastest for it to process and uh, it really engages less about the fact that this is a religious school or a religious denomination and it's just a pure question of corporate law what was the provision for how your directors if it had been board of directors or your regents in the case of a board of regents how they are chosen and courts are really known for stability and honoring the documents i mean that's that's what they do about these kind of issues i like that as the first issue because I think the prospects for our success on that are very good. Then you've gained four votes. And there were some soft votes that shifted between November, when the first wrong action was taken, and the reaffirmation of that action in April of the next year. There was a vote or two that shifted. There's some soft wrong votes there. And if they see the regents lose that first simplest issue, that could soften those votes more and it might do a lot more good than we would expect. Mark, with regard to the Concordia University system, first of all, what is it? And then what do the convention delegates here have before them in terms of reforming that system? Well, the Concordia University system was founded about 30 years ago, and it is the old joke, the Holy Roman Empire was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire. In some ways, Concordia University system is neither Concordia University nor a system. They had a variety of things, both on the left-hand and right-hand kingdom sides, in terms of both theological oversight and sort of secular administrative oversight. And I think they had difficulty in performing all those functions because of the confusion of the two kingdom issues. 
resolution 704 is a very long resolution and it's going to be picked apart because it is so detailed but this is really the culmination of a 10-year process. The last several conventions there have been resolutions passed to continue to study a new governance plan and this has been discussed to death. They have had any number of meetings, they've had opportunities for the boards and presidents to provide feedback and it's, it's continued to evolve but at some point one has to act and make a decision. The efforts will be well, we need to study it more and I don't think that's appropriate. I think some action needs to be taken. What they're trying to do is change the function of CUS so that it focuses more on theological aspects. It will engage in a visitation function where it will come to campus regularly on a three-year cycle, examine the institutions based on the Lutheran identity standards that all of the presidents agreed to unanimously, even Portland when Portland was still open, agreed to these standards. They're going to flesh out metrics that the campuses will be measured by and they'll either meet them and if they don't meet them they'll have an opportunity to uh, go on probation or go on review for about three years and bring themselves into compliance and the same applies to church work programs. If they don't come into compliance they will get essentially disaccredited meaning that they can no longer train church workers as an authorized institution of the Missouri Synod. That's, and it's not separating them from Synod, but it's saying you're no longer in good standing. We're not going to let you certify teachers or church workers. So they're trying to make the Concordia University system the right-hand kingdom and then have the left-hand kingdom issues either dealt with by the institution's board of regents, which is in many ways the appropriate place, with some oversight as to financial matters by the Synod board of directors. And there are some additional changes about requiring additional training for Board of Regents members, requiring additional certifications, making sure that the institutions regularly communicate minutes, decisions, financial aspects, and things of that nature so that there's more regular oversight and things don't drift as has happened really over the last decade or so. Tom, what message do you want the delegates here at the convention and the leadership of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod to get regarding the need for reform on CUS and the need to deal with Concordia University, Texas. What do you want them to know? Well, the same thing that I said to the committee and everybody in that standing room only committee room of floor committee seven, I stood up and said to everyone there that I support each and every resolution that that committee has produced and I support every part and particle of each one of those resolutions. Those resolutions. He has a Quia subscription to these <laughs> resolutions. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was a full, I, I did. I intentionally gave a full-throated endorsement of their work. Those guys, their shoulders should be drooping down for the weight that's on that committee. And they have done a terrific job. They have listened to people. They have engaged with unknown numbers of people. They have made revisions. They have taken suggestions. They've incorporated people's ideas. They have been open and what they've come up with is as good as humanly possible. I suppose once you live with it for a little while, you would learn by experience and get some 2020 hindsight. You might tweak it in another convention or something. But as far as now is the hour of decision. And you know, what the opposition was doing in their arguments was basically trying to get the committee to push the big pause button on boogeyman uncertainties. Like we don't know what the ramifications are under Texas corporation law which is, that's just a boogeyman, this isn't true. Or we need to be worried about federal funding of students' loans and so on. We need to be worried about accreditation agencies. Well, schools always have this, and we have this method of dealing with these actions that 
Committee 7 are proposing are not going to make that one lick more complicated than it already is or change the strategy or require us to develop a whole new expertise to deal with or anything like that. That is a pure smokescreen to just talk it to death, I think it's a phrase that Mark used, talk it to death, paralysis by study, paralysis by self-doubt. And what I said to the committee, the way you've done this work, this is such terrific workmanship you've done. You don't need to study this anymore. What you need to do now is bring it to the floor and let the delegates say yes to you. And I think that's what they're going to do. When we come back, we're going to continue our update on the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Senate with Mark Stern and Tom Halverson. We'll return to the issue of Luther's large catechism with annotations and contemporary applications. The fundamental question that these parables ask is this, is it possible for someone who has fallen away from the faith, a baptized child, to be brought to repentance? And the answer is yes, a thousand times yes. It has to be yes. Or I'm damned. And so are you. Pastor Peter Bender speaking at the 2023 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. But if we as earthly parents love our children in spite of the fact that they rebel and maybe wander from home, how much more does the Father's love for us in Christ Jesus never cease? That is the birthright that you and I have been given in our baptism. That is our consolation. You can watch and listen to Pastor Peter Bender's teaching, Making the Case for a Dying Man's Consolation, and all of the presentations from this year's conference for a contribution of $300. It's available via on-demand video stream or podcast. Learn more at issuesetc.org. We love our on-demand listeners. You're listening to Issues Etc. When you hear the word heresy, what do you think of? Do you think of some ancient debate the church has gotten over and forgotten? Do you think of some stubby old theologians just arguing over things that don't matter? There's a lot more to heresies than you might think. And that's what the August issue of The Lutheran Witness is all about. Heresies, ancient and modern. To pick up your copy, visit cph.org witness or visit our website, witness.lcms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father. Listen to chapel services live weekday mornings from Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Morning Chapel from Kramer Chapel. Live weekday mornings at 8.30 Central, 9.30 Eastern, 7.30 Mountain, and 6.30 Pacific at issuesetc.org. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're broadcasting from the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. We're talking with Mark Stern, an attorney in Chicago and a convention delegate, a member of the Committee for Convention Nominations, and Tom Halverson, an attorney in Montana, a convention delegate, and a member of the Board of Directors of Concordia Publishing House. Tom, before the break, you were talking about some resolutions coming out of a committee that you wholeheartedly supported. I want to turn to one that you do not wholeheartedly support, and that is Resolution 
1-14. What is it? What does it say? And why can you not recommend the passage of that? Resolution 5-14 is a response to a controversy that erupted early in this year when the new annotated large catechism and with including essays of contemporary application were published. It was a CTCR publication that CPH prints for them. And immediately there were outcries of uh, complaints about the content of it. And in that outcry, there was a way lot more heat than light. There was people on one side making accusations that the book had gone woke and CRT and so on. And when you looked at the critiques they were making, you could see that the people making those critiques didn't really know what those words actually meant. They just understood that it's today's way of smearing something and they were just smearing. And unfortunately, the defenders on the other side stooped to that same level and countered calling the first group alt-right and even Nazis and so on. And so it just, it just descended into a very terrible conversation. And what that did was drown out a, the middle group that exists and hasn't almost been recognized as even existing, that isn't into the, all that name-calling and mudslinging type of uh, rhetoric, but has a series of substantive theological problems with the publication based on the confessions of the Lutheran Church. And they are things like the denial by omission of the atonement of Christ in an article where due to the subject that was assigned to the author, because of that subject, it was his duty to confess the atonement. That's what his subject should have been. And he omitted it. And the reason he omits it is because when you look at his other many writings, he expressly denies the vicarious satisfaction of Christ in the atonement. So he comes in, and he's not an LCMS pastor. He comes into an LCMS book. He knows it's not going to fly to say what he has said everywhere else and enunciate his denial of vicarious satisfaction. So he simply omits the atonement where it should have been confessed. That, that's a denial by omission. Then there's a, an article where the, on page one it starts off talking about the two kingdoms. and page two he's talking about the three estates. He doesn't make any transition. He, it looks like he thinks he's still talking about the same thing. He's mushing the two together. And then when he's got them mushed, then on page three he uses the mush to condemn innocent Christian behavior about self-defense in the home. That uh, the law of Moses allows it. You know, the householder can defend with force if somebody comes into the house in the dark of night, you can't see what they're doing, you don't know what they're doing, and, and it's a threat, you as the householder can defend your wife, your children, using deadly force. But that author said, no, you couldn't. The only person that has the authority to use deadly force is the secular state. Well, that, that's just an error. And part of the way that the error was built was another theological error saying that the power of the state came only from the fifth commandment. But we have said since the Reformation that the state comes under the fourth commandment. It's like under the authority of parents. It's, you know, the parenthood is the archetype of all authority and that's where we locate the state. So those are, that's another mistake. And then the unqualified and disqualified authors that are there that are not LCMS authors. And I'm not saying every author in a catechism for our synod has to necessarily be an LCMS author. There's some really great guys in the Evangelical Lutheran Church that could write competent articles. There's some guys in the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Church that can write competent articles that we agree with. 
And I don't have any objection to that. I have an objection to heterodox and heretical authors and from heterodox and heretical uh, denominations writing and then this becoming the on-ramp for our unsuspecting lay people to be impressed that, well, apparently the synod thinks these are good people to read and so then they go off and read other stuff and get dragged off into their heresies. Now, I do want to commend the committee. I mean, I, this is pretty, I realize that's pretty, pretty pointed critique, but, but this committee deserves a lot of respect for us. When I spoke in their open committee room, I invited all the people who are on, so to speak, my side of this that were not satisfied with this resolution because it calls upon us to commend the use of this catechism with all these flaws. And, you know, we always say, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I said, the baby's never in any danger being thrown out because we never throw out bathwater. I want to throw out the bathwater and keep the baby. And 514 doesn't do that. 514 requires us to commend the use of it, bathwater and all. But that doesn't mean that I'm not recognizing a lot of great work this committee did. There were four overtures thrown at this committee and three of them were bad. And they properly did the heavy lifting of plowing through it. When they went over the ground, they had the plow on the ground. They turned the soil over and they, they saved what was worth saving and they got rid of the junk. And it was a, a masterful job of sifting on those first three overtures. Then they began with the fourth one, which was a pretty decent overture written by the two faculties of our seminaries, a much better overture. And you can see that the committee started with that, plus added a few of their own ideas and cleaned up like 90% of the problem. Uh, but it's like they took the kick, if we're gonna use a football analogy, they took the kickoff and put together a pretty good drive, made a lot of first downs and got all the way down to the 10 yard line. They made a 90 yard drive, but they're not on the scoreboard yet because they're still 10 yards to the goal and I wanna see those 10 yards. I suggested, and this is uh, coming out of my district, a lot of guys in the Montana district have said this, that what they need to do is pull back this edition, make the corrections, and issue a second edition. You have then saved the baby, and you have thrown out the bathwater. What we're doing right now, we're saving the baby, we're also keeping the bathwater, and we're making the layman figure out which is baby and which is bathwater. That's not supposed to be the teaching function. The teaching function is supposed to be to help the layman sift that. We didn't do any sifting. Now this morning, in uh, addition to B of today's business, a possibly acceptable substitute resolution has been offered by somebody, and that would be to take the existing publication and split it. So you have the large catechism and the annotations in a volume that you're calling a catechism with annotations. Then take the essays of contemporary applications, put it in a separate volume, like a supplement, and bind it separately. And this would then present to lay people that here's our catechism and here's a bunch of people talking about the catechism rather than this talk over here that includes heretical omissions of the atonement and so forth as if that was our catechism. They could get rid of that confusion. Although I would rather go with the second edition method. This method in the substitute resolution that somebody offered this morning could be an acceptable resolution, and I'm going 75-25, I'm probably in favor of that resolution. I wanna think about it a little bit more, but that's the work that the committee has done, deserves a lot of credit, but they're 10 yards short of their touchdown, I just want them to carry it the rest of the way. 
So, Mark, for a final question, why is it important that the lay people of our church body get involved, both at their local congregation, but also for synod at large? The synod exists in the form it does today in a large part because laymen 50, 60 years ago, when the quote-unquote battle of the Bible happened, cared about doctrine. And they cared enough that they were willing to spend their time, their money, their efforts to bring the synod back from the precipice of higher criticism and going down the route of modern American mainline Protestantism toward essential apostasy. The informed laity is a challenge. We need more informed laity than we had. We don't have the sort of the organizations and the collegiality among people from different congregations that we used to have. These are the people that serve on boards. These are the people that need to be delegates to district conventions, to national conventions, to just be informed readers of theology. The duty of the hearer to judge the preacher and the doctrine that's being taught to them. That's something that's been lost. That's a concern I do have structurally, not to get back to a little bit to large catechism, is there's not really a clear way for the individual layman who's not a member of synod to challenge something. Doctrine review requires you to be either a congregation, and yeah, you can ask your pastor to do it, you can ask your congregation to do it, but we've sort of lost that. And ultimately, we have to have an informed clergy, we have to have a well-trained clergy, but we also have to have laity that care. And some of the things that happened with large catechism were very bad, but what I would say is, I am grateful that we have laity that do care enough about doctrine, that they dug into this, that they wrote letters, and some of them didn't express themselves in a what I would consider to be a Christian way, but let's not, as TR says, throw the baby out with the bathwater, let's provide a way for people, and we should do it Christianly and civilly, and not with some of the crazy stuff that went on, but if we don't have laymen that care about our doctrine, we will lose our doctrine, and that's the backbone of our congregations. So, People need to be involved in this. People need to get on these boards. The Commission on Theology of Church Relations, Concordia Publishing House, each of those has a board. They make decisions. If you don't like those decisions, get people on there that are going to make decisions that you might prefer. But be involved at your congregational level. That is one of the greatest challenges as our numbers shrink a little bit at congregations is getting people to be involved and having that breadth of knowledge, that breadth of service that we have had in the past that brought our synod back from the brink. We need to rediscover that level of involvement and commitment by the laity in the Missouri Synod. Mark Stern is an attorney in Chicago, a convention delegate, and a member of the Committee for Convention Nominations. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Wilkin. Tom Halverson is an attorney in Montana, a convention delegate, and a member of the Board of Directors for Concordia Publishing House. Tom, thank you again. Thank you, Pastor Wilkin. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Good night from the 68th regular convention of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in Milwaukee. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, IssuesETC.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.